0: Hello, and welcome to Three Moves Ahead. I'm your host, Bruce Garrick. And tonight, we're going to talk to a very accomplished game designer about a very unusual game. But first, I'd like to talk directly to you a little bit about how this game works. I'd like to save all of my time for the guest, and I don't want to really interrupt him too much to explain the game mechanics, although I know that's sometimes unavoidable. And I'd also like you to know something about the game before we chat, if you aren't already familiar with it. If you're familiar with the game and want to just jump straight to the discussion, you can fast forward to about five minutes into this. Um, The game designer is Mark Herman, and the game is called Churchill. Uh, It's a game that investigates the relationship between Winston Churchill, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Joseph Stalin as they tried to both win the war, thats the Second World War, and impose their own ideas on the post-war peace. And it translates this into a three-player board game. Now, the game was released this past summer and has been both popular and controversial. It's popular because it's already sold out its initial print run, and it's controversial because people have been questioning certain game design decisions, and I'm going to talk to Mark about those. Um, While the game has quite a few moving parts, the the core concepts are actually quite straightforward, and once you overcome the unconventional combination of mechanics and unusual concepts, I think the game is actually quite simple from a rule standpoint. Uh, It basically consists of two linked parts. Okay, so there's this strategic map board uh, that depicts the European and Pacific theaters of war in a stylized form, uh, and it has tracks leading from each major front uh, to the Axis power being confronted. Uh, So uh, there's a a track leading from Germany, uh, leading to Germany from the Eastern Front, uh, and then from the Western Front to Germany, and also the Italian Front. And then armies progress along these tracks. And so in this way, it's it's superficially like the State of Siege series, uh, if you just want to try to visualize it. But Uh, Unlike State of Siege, the fronts are directed by the players, and the die rolls are are required for advancement based on the number of resources, uh, which are also called offensive support points, that are allocated to each front. So the tracks have attached to country boxes as well, and this is where players can place clandestine networks and political alignment markers uh, within certain restrictions. So at the end of the game, victory is determined mostly by what has happened on this part of the board. So uh, I guess you can say this is where the game plays out. But where I'd say the game happens is on the second half of the board, which represents a three-sided conference table with one of the leaders sitting in each chair where the negotiations between Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin take place. Now, the mechanics for this are completely different from those used on the strategic map. Instead of rolling dice, the players play numbered cards, which uh, represent advisors, or each player has a card representing the leader uh, himself, to try and move various issues into their third of the table. Now, these issues uh, determine where players have to allocate production, uh, offensive support that we talked about, atomic bomb research, uh, maybe who's in charge of a given theater, uh, or how to resolve a set of uh, three global issues um, relating to how political support can be placed on the map. So while the goal of the game is ostensibly to defeat the Axis powers, the real goal is to best position your particular country in the post-war environment uh, that you're trying to shape. So the British would like to see colonialism preserved uh, for obvious reasons, but they would like a free Europe. While the Americans want uh, self-determination for the colonies, so they're in direct conflict with the British on this. And they'd like for post-war governance to be under uh, United Nations protection. So the Soviets would like uh, to divide Europe up into spheres of influence, so they're in conflict with the British, and uh, to let post-war governments be subverted in the name of great power geopolitics, which is where they're in conflict with the Americans. So you can see that there, are, you know, sort of the three pointed, uh, there's a triangle of of issues that uh, each power is is in conflict with the other two on an issue, um, and the state of these tensions uh, determines who can place political influence and where. And polit- political influence is a big uh, victory point determinant. So influencing any of these issues uh, requires successfully playing the numbered cards to bring a given issue to your part of the table. Uh, so these negotiations are literally a case of uh, playing your cards right, I guess you can say. Uh, the game proceeds through a series of conferences. There are three in the tutorial scenario, five in the so-called tournament scenario, and ten in the full game. Uh, since it's a three-player game, the dynamics are supposed to encourage a sort of balance of power that uh, emphasizes no one getting too far out in front. Victory is determined differently depending on whether you defeat both Axis powers or not. Uh, if you do, and the margin of victory is 15 victory points or fewer, then the leader wins the game and it's over. Uh, if the margin of victory, though, is greater than 15 victory points, you have to roll a six-sided die. And if the roll is greater than the margin of victory, then the second-place player wins, Okay. And then there's a third condition, uh, if the Axis powers are not defeated, then the final victory point count is modified by die rolls again, but this time you subtract points from the two leaders and add points to the last place player. So this can make the end of the game a bit chaotic, and because uh, points can shift rapidly each turn, it can be hard to tell exactly where you stand prior to the final victory count. Some people have complained that the victory determination can be somewhat unsatisfying. Uh, By the way, these victory conditions are uh, termed Condition 1, Condition 2, and Condition 3. And uh, we'll talk to Mark about that as well as the premise behind his construction of the victory conditions uh, in this way. Um, So there there are a number of interesting new concepts in the game, uh, but one of the most intriguing is the issue resolution where players put down cards in this round-robin manner and they try to pull issues to their side of a three-sided table. And while everyone has the same deck of card values, Each advisor has certain attributes modifying uh, his strength, and I say his because there are no female advisors, uh, depending on the issues being decided. So one country might be more likely to win a certain type of issue than another. But not all issues will be on the table at a given conference, and you can't even win all the issues at at a certain conference. You can't even we have to, you'll win a subset of the issues, uh, if any. And if you get in a tug of war over a certain issue with someone, the fact that this is a three player game means that the third player can take advantage of that, uh, of you being tied up in an argument over something. And, uh, to, you take the, uh, to his advantage. So it's a clever system, and you get this very interesting dynamic that develops. Now, I've only really sketched out the basics of the game, uh, so if you'd like to see how the game actually plays, I highly recommend a video by a gentleman uh, called Stuka Joe, who went through the extended example of play that's in the rule book, and he made a video out of it. And it gives you um, this sort of like step by step illustration. You can just see how the game plays out. We have a link to that at the bottom of the podcast. And just as an aside, if you like board war games uh, and like watching board war game videos, then you should definitely subscribe to Joe's channel because um, he does a lot of great videos. and His production values are particularly very high. So I enjoy watching his stuff. You should check it out. Uh, okay, so let's talk to Mark. Uh, he's a great guest. He's been uh, active in the hobby for over four decades. Uh, he has a very uh, he has a lot of interesting ideas. Um, and I'd also highly recommend his wargaming blog, uh, which you can find at e-markherman.com. There'll be a link to that at the uh, Bottom of the podcast as well. Uh, he's by the way, he's working on a game using similar mechanics uh, titled Pericles, the Peloponnesian War, uh, which you can bet will be a topic for a later show. Uh, but for now, let's have a chat with designer Mark Herman about his game Churchill, the Big Three Struggle for Peace. Of glow. So I'd like to bring in Mark Herman. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bruce. So, Mark, thanks for coming and talking to me. Um, I was going to introduce you as game designer of, but then I think we'd be here for an hour as I uh, listed all of your games. So I want to just cut straight to Churchill. Um, You are obviously a a well-known game designer. I have won multiple awards, and um, this is sort of a... If anyone were to take on a game of sort of this uh, unique nature, I would expect it to be you. How did you actually end up deciding to make a game about uh, the big three negotiating in world war ii
1: well you know it, it always comes you know my game designs usually uh you know come out of my interests you know i am a historian uh i've taught uh you know military uh, strategy at uh, various universities and so i was going through a period where i just i had reread uh, churchill's memoirs of world war ii and so I had his voice in my head, and then I said, you know, I'd like to see, you know, I know that uh, that particular, um, you know, that was not really, uh, it was a little bit propaganda. You know, was, he mm-hmm. wrote that, but he wrote it with a group of people. You know, his memory was what it was, you know, very nice. self-serving at times. So I wanted to read, uh, and I had read before, but I wanted to read a lot of books on that topic of, you know, World War II uh, diplomatic history. I mean, I, look, we've all played, like, since uh, John Prados' uh one of my favorite World War Two games, uh, you know, Third Reich. Third Reich. I was gonna say it's like Rise and Decline of the Third Reich. Yeah, That's I think what it's definitely. called, yeah. But uh, Third Reich, and you know, I've gone through, you know, Krieg. But there's a, and I love all those games. But it's sort of like a certain narrative, right? You know, it's you know, it's it's very military. You're doing economics, and I really wanted to focus on the strategy of winning the war, mm-hmm. not the actual moving of divisions around on the map. And so, as I was reading these books, I said you know, what game, I always like to play games when I'm reading books, and I kind of go, well, what game could I play? And the answer was, there wasn't one. Right. And so it started forming in my head is, could I do a game on the, actually running the war? And that sort of led me down this path to a game where everybody was on the, the good guy's side, or at least on the Allied side. They're not all good guys, but, mm-hmm. uh, but they're on the Allied side, and that the Germans and the Japanese were really, you know, they're there t- because they're resisting, you know, the efforts. But you know that they're going to lose the war at some point and so i wanted to pick up this narrative of the big 3 uh, defeating uh, defeating evil it's very much like almost like a lord of the rings story if you think about it right okay, you know yeah you know you got the fellowship of the ring and you're going to go take down Sauron Sor- and you know uh, isengard and so it's really it's really a fantasy story although that i think maybe that's where the fantasy story comes from but it is that story of good versus evil at least at one level but then at another level it's a very nuanced story about a um, strange bedfellows, you know, that Stalin, Roosevelt and Churchill, very different agendas, very different um, personalities and more and also the more importantly, the people under them and how they didn't get along and how that all played out into a, um, you know, defeat for the axis, but also the basically led right almost directly into the Cold War Mm -hmm. uh, that came right out of World War Two.
0: I see your Lord of the Rings analogy um it, it sort of presupposes a, a a lot more um beneficence on the part of the allies than I think that uh, would would be in the Lord of the Rings story but that beneficence in fact as part of your um is part of your premise right because what you have is this track and uh you know the sort of the inexorable march of the good guys to take down the bad guys, and the bad guys are sort of these two spots on the track, right? The, the eyes of Sauron, if you're going to put it that way. Yeah. So, um, so, how did you end up deciding? I, I, I'm just fascinated. I have to tell you that when I when I sat down with the game, I uh, I was really taken aback by how I, I guess how inventive it was. It's, it's 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 games like that that always sort of just dis- Demonstrate to me that I could never be a game designer because I, I, I see it and I'm like, oh, this is great. This really makes sense. But I could never have come up with it myself. So h- how did you decide to get that track on one side and then have this whole negotiation mechanic on the other side?
1: It's the negotiation mechanic that. You know, so you know, imagine what I wanted to get people to see thematically was that when you read the history of. The, so there are these three. Uh, gentlemen with their entourages, right? You know, and the entourages, by the way, were very small in most cases at these conferences. Right. And they're literally sitting around a table, and often in a room by themselves, and they're they're deciding the fate of the you know of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally at that level of you know they're talking about after the war and you know the UN and they're talking about and and of course they all have these national agendas and. But they have to stay together to finish off. You know, the Germans are tough, you know, and the Japanese are tough to defeat. Right. They're going to lose. And I, I also remember that you are picking up the story about the time that they know they're not going to lose the war. The question is, how are they going to win the war? So you don't have, you know, the descent of you know, Pearl Harbor and, you know, all that stuff is is all behind you mm-hmm. and you're looking forward. And so what I wanted people to feel was they were sitting around a conference table as The actual person. So you're not wondering, like, you know, who am I in the game? You are Roosevelt, Stalin or Churchill. So you have a very specific personality in the game and you have these other personalities that are supporting you. And the idea was that you're sitting around this conference table and that you are, in fact, um, the give and take of a conversation around uh, these issues. You know, you know, how are we going to prosecute the war? So that so that was really where the game design focused and in the question was what issues did they talk about? So I did a lot of read. I mean, I've read like over fifty books on this on these topics. Hmm. And, and what's amazing to me, by the way, is how little um, history uh, people really know about this stuff. I mean, I just you know I see comments on the boards, and they'll say, "Well, that seems very ahistorical," and I'm sitting here going like, you know, like that never happened or whatever. And I'm going like, yeah, if you if your level of understanding is a high school textbook, you're probably right. Right. So, but beyond, as soon as you got beyond that, you realize that this was a very fractious, um, evolving re- set of relationships, and I wanted to capture that in the game, which is you know what I was hoping for. So although you're cooperating, you are truly competing. This is a competitive game, and so you're competing at all times. And then what are the issues that they're talking about? And so I had to. Co- and, and actually, believe it or not, I you know I I I had a very long um, a career in uh, you know in corporate in the corporate world. Right. And it really was um, the meetings in my my experience of having sat through, I don't even know, I couldn't even tell you how many thousands of meetings I have sat through in my career. Okay, It was that, that was the, almost the, um, the mechanic actually arose out of my own personal experience of being in a meeting and how, you know, an issue would come up and how people would, you know, somebody would make a good argument and all of a sudden, you know, something dumb was about to happen and then somebody, thank God, would come up and say, well, wait a minute, and they'd say something else, and all of a sudden the, and they, and you could almost feel the shift of the room mm-hmm. from, you know, from that to the other. And so I wanted to capture that ebb and flow of a, you know, people making arguments, which was effectively using the staff cards to move the issues on those tracks. Okay. And, you know, some people see the, uh, the metaphor, you know, it's like you, you see it or you don't, you know, so if you see the metaphor, you understand what you're doing. Some people have said that the thematic in the game is very thin. And I say, okay, so you, you don't see yourself sitting around a conference table doing it? Well, what are you going to do? But that is the thematic that I'm going for. And, you know, for others, it it does very well capture that kind of—they get they get the metaphor, and so they, they're able to, to see the story that I'm trying to have them have them live through.
0: Yeah, I, I don't—I mean, my criticism—and I, I do have a criticism of the game, but it's actually a specific part of the game—is not that it's not thematic. I think it's tremendously thematic. I mean— the, the cards using the, um, the staff cards to, uh, sort of represent this back and forth, I think is great. Uh, I think it works very well. I feel very sort of invested in the conference mechanic when I'm playing the cards, you know, we're all sitting around a table and we all have our cards and, and I guess, you know, you know, the whole idea of, you know, put your cards on, I'm putting my cards on the table, right? I mean, it's all, it's all this, um, uh, negotiation, I, I think that works tremendously well. Um, you know, I, I wonder how. Uh, you know, it, it seems to me, and and this is this is not actually a criticism because um, it, it, within the context of a game, you can only do so much, right? And so, I feel like the personalities of Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin are a little. Well, I'll have you responded this? Uh, how how do you feel about them being a little bit? buried because you've got all these cards you can only use those leaders once i i sort of imagine and and i've i haven't read 50 books uh, i've probably read i think five is what i read uh after i got the game or shortly before getting and after getting the game uh that the the personalities of the leaders were much more i mean they completely kind of overwhelmed the rest of their staff except later on when when uh roosevelt was becoming a little more uh his health was going but um it seems that you've buried the leaders a little bit in and sort of brought up the staffers. Is that would that be an accurate criticism?
1: Um, I don't know. if it's Well, let me let me describe um, like what one of the real conferences just for a moment. That might help. OK, sure. Uh, so if you look at, um, you know, let's like, let's think about um, Tehran. Tehran. A perfect choice. So we're in Tehran. And for those who um, are not familiar with the history, Tehran is the first time. That uh, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin sit in the same room to, with each other. Uh, so Roosevelt had been trying for a long time to get Stalin in the room, and but they finally get him in the room. And those leaders met over Tehran, maybe uh, taking out dinners, right? Because the dinners, of course, as everybody in the room. And by the way, the conference is still going on during the dinners, right? Uh, but there was probably only like four meetings between the the big three where they're actually sitting in a room, maybe just with translators and you know the, the minimum amount of people around them. But what's going on in parallel is the combined chief, uh, joint chiefs of staff. And that, and that means that, you know, the British, the, you know, this is Marshall and King and Leahy and, uh, you know, all of the, uh, you know, the British guys, you know, Brooke and, uh, and the, and the uh, what's his name, Veselesky, Veselesky, I think his name is, you know, they're sitting in a separate set of rooms. They meet far more often. So although I'm depicting this conference table where the big three are sitting The business is at in a real conference, the business is going on in multiple places over the course of like, you know, a week or 10 days. And so I'm sort of capturing, not burying the leaders, but I'm actually capturing the fact that most of the war fighting conversation is not taking place between the big three. They're talking about the global issue, right? talking about the political, the Paul Mills stuff, Mm -hmm. where they're talking, but all the military stuff, the directed offensives and production and lend lease and lift and all that stuff, that's happening. In, in a separate room and then they bring them sort of their recommendations and then they kind of say yes. And they almost always say yes with maybe some minor tweaking of the wording or something like that.
0: Okay. And and then how about, so fair enough. Okay. That's what I was trying to capture,
1: but I see your, and, and again, I wanted the leaders also, but now from a game design point of view, I just want to cover one other point, Right, is the fact that you, you have this, um, you have this, you know, the platinum bullet, right? You've got this very powerful individual and actually, historically, they they wait, you know, they they always had like like if you go back to um, Yalta, which is the second, and of course Roosevelt is starting to you know Roosevelt died you know two months after Yalta, right? Um, but Roosevelt had one basic objective; he wanted to get um, an affirmation that they're really going to have a UN. That was what, and so Roosevelt. So the leader typically came into these things with one uh, purpose. Mm-hmm. They had many purposes. You know, they had to fight the war and all that, but they usually had some big you know, There's always something at the top of the agenda, right, On their personal agenda. Right. Sure. And so that, in this case, I saw that the leader was really coming in, and you're, you're, you you're could have him. He has a huge impact in the game. When you play the leader, I mean, something's going to happen, right, mm-hmm. um, unless somebody blocks – another leader blocks him. And so that is what I wanted you to feel like. You know, I got this big hammer, but I only get one, get to use it once. And so I don't get to overuse it and underwhelm the rest of the design. So it's a big deal when you use the leader, but when you use them, you, you get something to happen.
0: All right, so that's fair enough. I like the uh, I like the way that that you sort of uh, focus that on the on the single issues. That's that's reasonable. How about the the issue of things like you know in the, for the Quebec conference, for example, you know Stalin wasn't even there, and I, I'm not sure that this that the Soviets had a lot of input into the Quebec conference, right? Because um,
1: so so what I'm trying to do there is, is that, you know, there was a lot of meetings. So, for instance, did you know that Molotov slept in the White House and had
0: private meetings with Roosevelt? I, I'd heard about that. Yeah, that's that's uh, I didn't realize he met. He met with him. I thought that he just OK that he slept in the White House.
1: And in fact, I, I don't know if this is, you know, I, I'm going to say something that I know is true, but I don't know if the second statement is true. So. I'm pretty sure he's the only person that the Secret Service ever allowed to be armed in the way house has with his
0: own gun. Yes, that's right. That's right. I, I do remember a story. Yes, Molotov was armed. Uh, so tell, tell that story, though. That's what. Uh...
1: So. So, um, you know, this is. So well, well, let me get to the point and I'll tell the story. So the point of it is, is that. There are the conferences are um obviously where people are you know the metaphor you know they're physically in the room or they're physically in the same place and obviously the russians were not really at quebec at all but what i'm capturing is they were there were a ton of other communiques and meetings going on between the the conferences were always the culmination of a lot of other things going on right okay. and so you know harriman's in moscow and he's meeting regularly with uh, the so you know the soviet leadership mm-hmm. and cuz he was our ambassador to moscow through most of this um and so you've got this there's a lot of other activities going on so when i when i have a conference where i say the leaders you know can only uh, debate not advance the issue right what that means is that they're underrepresented because they're a, either not there at all or they're only there in a sort of a uh, their 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 views are known and represented in the conference not necessarily in a positive way but you know they're 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 less represented and so your leader by showing your leader to be less um, uh, powerful in that context, uh, that he can't advance an issue, that then gives you the you know the sort of the, the the sense that they're they're really not there. But they're but again, it still tries to capture. You know what Molotov and what Roosevelt agreed to, and what Harriman and Stalin agreed to, right. is what's being represented in that conference anyway, because they know what they're, they know what the other side's position is, and it's right. discussed that way.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I understand that, and I'm willing to give you know give that kind of a pass because I really like the way that you 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 know have all these conferences, these ten conferences, and if you only had the ones where you know where Stalin was with the other two. Oh,
1: it's, I mean, only, it's
0: only it's yeah, three. Yeah, right. So, I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't really work, and, and it, it would be a shame, and I feel this way, I don't know if you feel this way, is that it would be a shame to let a good game go because the history didn't work for it.
1: Yeah, and, and again, as I said, the conferences, even historically, they only got the big guys together, or there was only, you know, or that some, you know, two or three of them together, and by the way, there was, you know, the Moscow conference where Moscow, uh, Churchill and... Stalin were together, but, you know, Roosevelt's health didn't permit him to go. Right. Uh, you're capturing the idea that when they actually got in the same room together, they had felt that they hadn't seen each other in a long time, and certain things that could not be worked out by the
0: staff now had to be worked out by them. Right. Um, so tell me then, you know, how did you— uh, it, there's a comment in your, um, in your designer's notes that was pointed out to me—I actually had missed it— was that the— there are three scenarios in your game. And, uh, one is the sort of the three, the three conference training scenario. Um, and the second one is the tournament scenario, which is the five conference scenario. And then you have a 10 conference scenario that, uh, encompasses. Yeah. All of it's the whole, it's the whole, uh, the whole shebang. So you make a comment, in your uh, in your designer's notes, that the the five conference scenario is um, the most play tested, and that if uh, if you want to use that in a tournament, that's the one that's probably the most balanced. Um, did you guys play test that the most because that was the sort of the sweet spot in terms of time, uh, or did you really feel that there was something in the five conference scenario that that captured all the things in the game that you wanted to capture?
1: Uh. I, well, I think that time was definitely, you know, again, there's multiple levels to why I design games, right? So, one is, of course, I'm a historian. I really want to tell a story. So, okay. that's the main reason. Uh, two, I would like the game to be popular. I mean, I don't, I mean, you know, it, it, you know, I do this for a living. So, you don't want nobody to be able to appreciate it. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, it can't be a game designer, but you don't have people who want to play your games, right? Right, of course. And so, uh, I, I, In my own personal life, you know, I'm 60 years old and I have a group of guys I play with and we play in an evening. You know, most people get together in an evening or an afternoon on a weekend because they got kids. They got other things going on in their lives. And if the game is going to extend past, you know, three hours, you're probably not going to uh, it's not going to get played a lot. It's not going to get played. And so I wanted to make sure that no matter what, I had a solid um three-hour experience that was meaningful and, you know, competitive and, you know, enjoyable and all those kind of things. And so, you know, the tournament scenario is where I focused a lot of the energy. And by the way, for the play testers, it's the same situation, right? They're getting together on their game night to play my game and play testing. So if it keeps extending beyond one session, you know, the reports, you know, the, uh, so-and-so couldn't show up this time, so we had to throw this other guy in. You know, you get to create problems for yourself. So the tournament scenario ultimately was um, – where you know where I spent most of my energy on the testing side, and also to be fair, you know the early going is a lot of you know the sort of the shadow boxing and feeling out the situation. So this way you get right into the action. You're starting out right before the eve of D Day, and you know the, the action's on. So it's sort of a little bit more action packed in my mind.
0: Okay, now so that because that leads me to my real you know one criticism of the game, uh, which is that I feel like the scenario that everyone plays is is really not the best game. Uh the best game in my mind because what what I think that the the game allows to happen is for the war direction to be different than it was. Um and I'm specifically thinking of things like how you know the 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 second front versus uh the Mediterranean and especially China Burma India. And or, you know, the Soviets sort of, you know, just invading uh, Japan before the Allies get there. Um, all sorts of things that, um, you know, didn't happen are very counterfactual. But it's a game, so the game allows you to do those things. And if you choose to, you know, the the, the one thing that I really like about games um, of this nature, and, you know, one of the reasons I play, uh, I play... Um, you know, historical war games and things is is plausible a historical strategies, and I think you have a really good plausible a historical strategy in terms of you know other fronts and and that you know that's really because that's what the what the whole negotiation not the whole negotiation that's overstating it but there was a lot of you know strategic direction of the war that was going on um, and the strategic direction of the war could have changed quite a bit um, and you re- you represent that you know sort of if the out if the you know uh, British get to uh, you know central Italy before the the uh, before D Day starts. They get some some points because because of how the um, uh, because of how the different sides wanted the the war to go. But if you start in the in the uh, tournament scenario, all that's kind of done, right? I mean, you you kind of have to to hold off the um, second front for one turn. Uh, so that the, if the British want to get those two points, uh, but the, you know, the allies, the, the Americans are pretty far ahead in the, in the, in the, um, in the Pacific, they only have one uh, B-29, they're They're one space away from a B-29 site. Uh, China, Burma, India has gone nowhere. So that's sort of, I mean, that's, that's not really even a viable theater. I mean, the only reason you would advance that is to try to uh, knock out some, uh, you know, Soviet um, uh what do you call it? clandestine networks? You don't even get to knock out the Americans, and the Americans are the ones going to be down there. So um, that's kind of a pointless, a pointless theater. So I feel like once you get to the tournament scenario, it sort of things are sort of decided for you, and you end up playing this kind of mechanistic game where you're you're only fighting over one or two. You know, there's there's a big difference, of course, whether you get one space or or no spaces uh, on a certain track. Um, you know, if you're one space ahead in um, on the eastern front versus the western front you know that's a big victory point difference but it's it, it's almost this preordained thing and uh, I think that you can only really examine the game's potential if you play that 10 turn scenario do you see something in the five turn scenario that I'm missing or do you do you um, do you have other other thoughts about that well
1: first off I, I would offer that you know, everything you said, I, I wouldn't take as a criticism because, you know, the 10, the 10 turn one is in the box. Like, so it's not something that's not in the game, right? It's just a matter of, you know, what is, and everybody has, um, different itches they want to scratch. Right. Mm-hmm. So you and I sit in the same place. I love, you know, you know, the plausible, um, path not taken. Right. Okay. You know, I, I always remind people that history is just once through the, uh, the garden, Right. But you do wargaming uh, as a general rule, you realize that there was a lot of, you know, forks in the road that mm-hmm. could have taken things in substantially different directions. And so the 10 turn campaign game is there to explore the whole thing. And so it comes in the box and and I'm and I'm, and I'm and I'm and I'm excited that people would then say, you know, wow, I played the tournament scenario, but it wasn't enough. I want to play the campaign. That's that's that feels good to me. I mean, I'm yeah. good with that. Yeah. I got, yeah. I no problems. Um So now going back to your point is, is the um, the tournament scenario more preordained? Um, I would have to say that in regards to the CBR, you know, the uh, China-Burma-India theater, Mm -hmm. uh, believe it or not, uh, I have seen many games where, because the the possibility for break, see what happens in the, for those who are not familiar with the game, um, there's a thing called a breakthrough. So in other words, you can go two spaces if you put enough resources and right. you know dice go your way. Although you can you can also force it, although that would be excessive. Uh, so you have these breakthrough potentials, and but you can't make a breakthrough to the second space if it's an amphibious space, right? right? So the Americans have no possibility of a uh, on the you know the Southwest Pacific and the Central Pacific right. have no possibility of a breakthrough because it's all amphibious spaces. Right. However, the British, even though they're in Burma. If you early in the so the British I've seen many games now actually um, more so than I did in playtesting where people will pump you know a ton of resources into Burma Mm -hmm. and get a couple of breakthroughs and they catch up very quickly to where they're in Formosa so I I think the breakthrough dimension still leaves the CBI thing open but I I take your point that it's you know you'd have to decide from the first turn that's where you were going to go probably Uh, the the thing that seems to be the most interesting is the um, the British uh, trying to just not even have a second front. That's kind of and that was part of that happened in playtesting many many times, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the strategies around um, you know how to force the British to you know to play ball is very much the big story in the tournament scenario. I think mm-hmm. uh, and. What's interesting to me, I just, you know, I, there's been sort of early on and I, and I actually wrote a primer that I put up on BGG before the game came out saying, here's what you're going to believe after you play the game a couple of times is the British Imperial staff, mm-hmm. the British are overpowered in the palm mill and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And oh, by the way, that's not a mystery to me. You know, uh-huh. I played this thing, you know, hundreds of times. Right. So we, I saw all of it. Uh, and so I started discussing, you know, the strategies and the game, and this is part of the game design. Game balance in this game is achieved by the players, not by the game system. In other words, I'm looking at three humans trying to balance out against this, you know, victory point, conditions of victory situation. It's the humans that balance the game. And so if if the players sort of take their eye off the ball, and in the tournament scenario, the first turn of the tournament scenario is in many cases critical, by the way. And so I find what I have found is that inexperience is... Which I always knew would occur gives the British an edge, mm-hmm. but I just recently played in three games. One of them uh, with a good friend, uh, J R Tracy, and a, mm-hmm. a, a guy who I I knew of only met recently, a guy named Ted from down, and he runs another blog down in Fool's um, Church. Okay, and they were having this experience, and he you know he was saying to me, I don't see how how the British don't win, and so I we played a game. And I've done this a few times now. And after the first turn, I said to him, "Is this any the way I'm playing the Soviets? Is that anything you have seen?" He goes, "No, I hadn't seen that."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so it's it's not that he doesn't you know give you a lot of options to um, deal with these things and have that kind of experience. That's not mechanistic, but there are a lot of strategies and how you work the conferences. That I think makes it non-mechanistic. You know, it's yeah. Yes, the fronts have to advance on Germany, but that happens in, even in the campaign game. Yeah. It's the issues in how you have to handle the situation, which is the, the differences between the campaign scenario. You sort of have a little bit of more time to kind of wander into the situation. Tournament scenario, you're smack dab in the middle of the war, and you got to get going. Right. And so it's, it's a much more intense experience, but different. You know. Uh, if you, I don't know if you, I think you did a podcast, which I couldn't, I couldn't figure out Skype at the time yeah. on the coins on the uh, fire in the lake, right? Yes, we did with Volco. And, and it, yeah, right. My, my good friend Volko, who I'm actually going to see soon. I'm very excited to, I haven't seen Volko in a while, but we're going to be at a GMT West, maybe oh, yeah. be out there. So I'm very excited to see Volko. Uh, we're, we're both staying at the same place. So we'll uh, get to hang out with each other, which I really do like him. And, uh, what you'll find is if you play the short scenario in fire in the lake, and then you play the medium scenario, the, you know, the Tet one,
0: mm-hmm.
1: same game, very different scenarios, right? right?
0: I agree with you, yes.
1: So I, I like to think that that's the, really the relationship of the tournament scenario to the campaign scenario is that it is the same game system, but it's a very different feel, which is fine. I mean, I, I think that that's good. It's, it's good that the, the uh, tournament scenario doesn't feel like the campaign scenario, even though it's the same game, with no special rules changing the two, by the way.
0: Well, so, so now you got to give me a pro tip. Uh, you said you played the Soviets in this very different way, well, because they felt that the British were overpowered. What was that way that you were playing oh, the Soviets?
1: I, I'm having to share this so so here's the thing um as by design, the british okay, so let's the sort of a couple of you know for people who don't know the game well uh-huh. the person has a staff deck. Where the numer- numerology of the cards is identical, right? So everybody's got four fives, four fours, etc. Right. Okay. So everybody's got the
0: same numbers on their cards. Oh, you know what? I have to be honest. I'm stupid. I didn't realize that. Yeah. If you, you if you if you don't believe me, just take the cards. And yeah. You- sure. No, I believe you. I just never never realized. Okay.
1: It's got 21 cards, and it's four fives, four fours down to four ones, mm-hmm. and then you, everybody has a cheapest staff card. That's the 21st card, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So you got 21 cards, identical values, but the personalities and the attributes means that that's where the asymmetry in the, the game is created through the attributes. Right. But numerically, they're all the same. In the agenda segment, to determine who goes last in the agenda, which is always an advantage, right? Going last has usually confers initiative in games, which is the opposite of real life, but that's how you capture real life. And so The British, because they have this plus one that they always get in the agenda segment. That's their special national superpower, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. Um, If they play a five card and you add one to it, it's a six. And the only way to anybody to the other two sides to get a six is that they play their chief of staff card and they roll a six. Which is obviously one. You got to play the card. You got to have the card. You got to play the card. You got to roll a six. So it'll happen, you know, every couple, every several games or so. But if the British want to be the, the guy running the agenda, by design, they can do it. But, however, because you don't shuffle the deck every – you shuffle the deck every other conference, mm-hmm. the British only have four or five cards just like the Americans and the British, right? I mean the Americans and the uh, Soviets. Yes. And so the British have to give up a five card to get this ability. They're going to be down a five card on average against the other two, right? That's okay. That's – that's just mathematical, mm-hmm. uh, and it works out that way probabilistically. So now, the question is the second. So now the question is there are these two conditional issues: the second front being the key one. You can't have G day without the second front, right? Right. And so the British, everybody goes, well, if the British don't want the second front and they don't want even to attack Germany, even all they have to do is, you know, neuter the second front on the last card play of every agenda.
0: Yes, because of the me- mechanics, they'll be able to do that. Yes. All right.
1: So, so the, the thing about that Churchill. Now we're gonna to get to the tip. Okay. So okay. I, I had to set that up because otherwise right, right, right. in the conversation. Yeah. So the thing about Churchill is going last is an advantage, but going first is also an advantage. And actually, in this case, the order of the players around the table is not accidental, although it happens to be historical. So they're sitting around a round table, and his I have pictures. You know, historically they are always sitting in the same relative position, you know, to each other. Really? Like, okay. But that's the way it was. I had to notice that after looking at a lot of pictures, I go, hey, wow. Well, you know, Churchill's always sitting to the left of Stalin and Roosevelt's always sitting to the right of Stalin. I mean, it just maybe they just got they yeah, did it once and they just kept doing it the same way. It's, it's probably knowing bureaucrats is probably why it happened that way. Yeah. But anyway, going back to my point. Um, the conditional issue is on the middle of the table. And so the presumption is at the last play, the British can just take it off the table. So in Churchill, the key is you can never have a singular strategy. You remember you're in a, in, a, in a conference. You don't know what issues you're going to win. And so you always have to have, in my mind, three ways to win, get what you want. You have to have three paths to victory all the time. Otherwise, you're going to too often find yourself just being stopped, right? Yeah. And so that's the high game. And so the issue is the British can stop one issue is a known factor in the game. Sure. So and but then the other thing is the Soviet superpower is yet right. ability right. the, to say no.
0: Yes, they can. they are debating is much stronger than there is stronger than their uh, than they're advancing, right?
1: Right, and and remember, the British are only getting plus one in the agenda segment. You know, the, the the Soviets are holding six cards during the conference, so technically they're a plus six if they play it right, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a lot more powerful if you think about it than one plus one. I got plus, I got plus six, you know, potentially.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm also playing directly to the left of the British, and I'm going to go first. So every time the British do something as the Soviets that I don't want them to do. I just net them immediately. And I'm my card on average is always going to be one better than theirs, no matter what they play. Right. Okay. So that's an important tactic in the game. So now here's what you do. First round um, UK wins the, so we're now in turn um, conference six, which is uh, London Mm -hmm. and it's right before D day. And, the British are going to play a f- one of their five cards, which, by the way, significantly reduces their Paul Mill capability because most – two of their best cards for Paul Mill are the five cards. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they're going to blow one of their Paul Mill cards to win the agenda segment. That's fine. So now the Soviets have to put two issues on the table, and it happens to be in that scenario the second front's in the middle of the table. So the, the first thing that the Soviets need to do is they need to put the other conditional issue, the USSR declares war on Japan, also in the middle of the table. Hmm. They also put a U.K.-directed offensive, and what you'll find is that two out of the three conference cards that may come up for at, at number six, the British are already have certain amount of production already committed. So as soon as you put the directed offensive in the middle of the table, in uh, particularly the B1, the British now have no ability to pay for a Paul Mill issue. So okay. they're not doing any Paul Mill on the first turn in one of the three conference cards, and in the other one you've more or less taken out their ability to do very much at all they might have one production free and that may or may not work out Mm -hmm. then the americans do whatever the americans do and the british do what they do now usually the british on the first um if they win the agenda segment will pick the global issue somewhere in the in the game yes and so the way you play the soviets is on your you go first and you play and and also a lot of people will also the british to get even will throw the ussr directed offensive on the table fine so my first play would be, as I played in this game recently, I play a one card and I just move the USSR, you know, issue onto my track, mm-hmm. and I usually get an offensive marker for it. By the way, because that's a lot of the uh, four, seven of the Soviet cards give naval or offensive markers in certain places that are useful. So just playing on the issue gives you, in essence, free production. That's right. a tactic. So I play it, I move it onto my one spot. Now the Amer, now nobody's going to debate me because they don't get an advantage for debate, so they'll just wait till their turn to do something. Right. Now, for the rest of the conference, every time somebody touches anything I want, I net it and move it onto my track further up. Every time they play a card, I play a stronger card. I just move it up the track. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening now, if you go around and fast forward, we're now into the last round. And the last round, I'll either use Stalin or use a powerful card to move the global issue onto my track. Mm -hmm. Comes around, now the British have a choice. Do they take the global issue? Do they mess up D-Day? Or do they stop the Manchuria invasion? I mean, which one do you want to do is a British choice, but they can't stop all three. Mm -hmm. And typically they will grab the global issue back. I've already got the UK directed offensive on my track, so they're going to be basically paying for whatever. And now I've got all of this um, production under Soviet control for the actual war part, the other half of the map piece. Right. Mm -hmm. And the conditional issue has been met. And this is the part that a lot of people also get confused about is even though the fronts have colors, like you know, there's a red one, there's a blue one, you know, green one, depending on which side you are. All fronts really are not controlled by anybody. In other words, they're allied. And so, with D-Day on, I take all of the Soviet production and these directed offensive, and I just throw it on on the second front, and D-Day happens.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and I, I've never been stopped actually. Unless the the British are trying to hurt themselves, like they don't want they let me have the global issue. Fine, I'll take the global issue. They want me to have, and I also have the USSR declares war on Japan. I'll just advance to the Manchurian into Korea to get a point. I mean, I open up my other strategies Right. That they can stop that one strategy. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to do much, if, you know. But if the British are going to use their last play to win an issue that doesn't win them the conference and also doesn't um, advance their cause, they're going to lose the game. So I'm good with that. Right. <laughs> and so when i was playing with these various people and i started doing this kind of stuff they just kind of look at me like we weren't doing that and i go i I understand i mean it's a game it's got a lot of deep strategy but it's the same set of rules right there's no special rules here it's just how you play each other
0: right and and i i I agree with you there you know i I do find it a little frustrating that you know i'll I'll see people discussing well you know we played the game once and this is how it turned out so this is how you know how we feel it plays um and you know i uh, I, I, I appreciate that a good game, you know, you're going to have to play it dozens of times and you still may be missing things. Um, you know, I, I can't say that this game is like that because I haven't played it dozens of times, so I don't know how my play will change, but I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that. I do, I do see that possibility. I still can't quite figure out how to play. The, 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 I'll tell you a thing that we ran into in our game, uh, the, our most recent game, was that the, uh, the American player, who uh, I have to say was also not very experienced with this kind of game, sort of assumed from history that he was sort of supposed to help the British out because they were allies. And so it was sort of a, a uh, U.S. versus uh, – U.S. And, and U.K. versus Russia kind of thing. And he ended up basically throwing the game to the British because the British were experienced and knew exactly what to do and sort of took all this help um, and didn't reciprocate. Um So I I think that there are are ways in which this game, you know, it it is a game. So um, you know, I'm willing to accept some of the ahistoricity. Um, The one thing that I'm not sure, and I, of course, I know you always get. forced to sort of discuss this part oh let me say one other thing i really like the idea did you publish it somewhere on the gmt website i think that if the british are going to do the you know they're going to win every conference then the uh uh, then the soviets are just going to grab the uh, a-bomb and and advance it on the first uh first play is that is that something you wrote on gmt
1: yeah that that is that is a very viable strategy so uh again for those who don't know stalin has a special superpower in that he's got this you know Spy agency, they penetrated the Manhattan Project. And so uh, if Stalin is used directly on the A bomb research, um, it can't be debated by the other leaders. So you just, you know, on the first play, if the A bomb's on there, you just use Stalin and it comes onto your chair and it's off the table and nobody can stop you. Right. So, yes, you can. So there's 12 points to be had, uh, which, by the way, is equal to, you know, uh, the. Four, four, uh, four countries worth of points right, in right. the game, which is quite powerful, by the way, in a, in a five uh, five tournament scenario. So there are multiple ways in which um, you know the Soviets prevail. But I will tell you that what I have found: see, the Soviets also have a ability to brute force the war. By the way, uh, and I do this regularly. That you, If you are very focused on grabbing directed offensives mm-hmm. and production right. because of the yet capability, I, I rarely – and with the leadership issues, I rarely um, fail to get at least four uh, offensive support out of the West whether they want to help me or not because mm-hmm. I can muscle it, right? Right. Uh, right? If I ignore the A-bomb issue for a little while, I don't play the – got to be focused with the Soviets, uh, although it, when they, when when the game you're describing occurs, when the Americans and the British have decided for – a historical reason, by the way, mm-hmm. was the Americans didn't trust, you know, the, the Americans and the British fought with each other a heck of a lot more than people realize right. over the Mediterranean uh, and, and over colonialism and over colonialism. Exactly right. I mean, there was some real fundamental big picture things that they fought about viciously. And, you know, you if you read Rook's diary, you read King's diary, mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't like each other and they yelled at each other. And right. it was they, they, have to, they used to have to go fishing once in a while just to kind of cool off. Right. Uh, literally from each other. They yeah. think, there's a famous one where Marsh they were fighting so badly in Washington that Marshall took them all out to Williamsburg, the Williamsburg Inn, which i stayed at a couple of times. Uh-huh. And they, you know, they drank and walked around and, you know, and they became, you know, they kind of didn't talk about the conference at all so they right. could go back and then could kill each other again in the room. But, right. but, the, but the point being is that if the Soviets, so the Soviets are going to be dealing with five German reserves, right? Mm-hmm. And they start off with a strength of two. So they got to get rid of four of them to even get a positive value.
0: Well, if I get well, they've got to get rid of all five, right? Because if they have, no, it, I'm just doing this mathematically. So, in other words,
1: I've got I've got five. I've got a strength of two, right? So I'm I'm at am at a negative four right now,
0: right? Right, right. But you, if you get rid of if you get rid of if you get rid of four, then you're at zero. So you still can't advance.
1: Correct. But I right. got that just gets me to even, right? Got it. Yep. So two directed offenses get me to even.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Now uh, I have um, three SOE um, production. I'm now at plus six, right? Okay. And because of the way the Soviet deck is created, you're always going to get at least one more from a card, you know, mathematically. You're going to get one from playing the card correctly on the Eastern front. So now you're at you're at an eight strength, and I do that regularly. Now, yes, you could roll a nine or a zero, and if you can get one more, it's automatic, by the way. Right. We could even get a breakthrough. But that's how I, I play the Soviets. And once the Soviets could get their army moving... The West. It changes the tenor and the the game. The balance in the game changes very quickly because the Soviets getting into Germany by themselves when they don't need the West creates problems for the West. Right. And so, and and I have found that I win the game as the Soviets just that way alone. And I, if I can get the conditional, uh, the USSR declares war, and they don't need a conditional issue to do that, by the way. So that's something they can do by themselves. And if I can get the USSR conditional uh, issue on the table and get into Manchuria, mm-hmm. then I've got the eight points of Korea sitting out there. So the Soviets can win a military game when the West decides that if they're all against them, quite frankly. Right. Right. But again, the, the net capability is critical to making that happen. Yeah. In other words, you're not advancing issues. You're basically blocking and gaining on the block. Right. Right. That's the key. So so the other thing that that I oh, think wait, pe- one last thing. And, 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 and again, because you're debating. yeah. Let's say the British, you know, you need to have a directed offensive. You don't have to play Stalin on the, on the um, you know, on the uh, the A-bomb issue. You can play it on a directed offensive or the global issue. Sure, and sure. you debate on those things and you win them, that gives you control over – because a lot of people don't realize you can't place the political markers on the table unless the global issues allow you to do so. Right. And so I have played also with the Soviets where – I bring, you know, with my last card play, I'll bring the global issue to the middle of the table where nobody wins it because that's actually to my advantage. In yeah. the game. So, again, there's a lot of strategies about how you manipulate the situation to your advantage.
0: Sure. OK, so <clears throat> let's talk about, I think, something else that you've you've sort of uh, been questioned about is the victory conditions. Um it's interesting that you know you, it. It seems like uh, the thing that you're trying to avoid is to have one player run away with the game, and if it's actually not to your advantage to run away with the game, uh, is that because you're trying to create a sort of like a uh, you know a, a three uh, create this triangle where you don't want one one uh, you you, you want to make it two against one and have that shift back and forth? Why why did you why did you decide to choose on that choose that uh, that kind of
1: Okay, so this is uh, a very. This is probably the most important part of the design in some ways. So, we were all you and I and all of our friends who are listening to this. We were all raised as gamers, where you know I am just here to um, you know get the most points or you know capture the most objectives, and I do this you know in a very single minded way. There's unless it's an out now cooperation game. I mean we're we're competing, and and so it's a straight competitive situation, and I'm. I am, my DNA is to grab the most I can get in any game I play, because that's how we were raised, right? This is what all our, you know, if I'm the Germans, you know the Soviets, it's the Eastern Front, there isn't a lot of negotiation, right? It's just like trying to beat the heck out of you and vice versa, and any other situation you can imagine. So what the victory condition is saying is, look, historically, there's this alliance. Now, I know as players, you don't understand the whole idea of alliance because you're not even you're not even like, you know, your chemistry isn't even set that way. And so I need to create a such circumstance where the game is forcing you to create the the facade of an alliance like it was historically. So although they were fighting with each other, if the fighting got outside of a bound, the whole thing breaks down. And then by the way, that is exactly what happened at the end of the war. In other words, as the American, when the American armies got into Central Germany after they got over the Remagen Bridge, mm-hmm. and Bradley and Bradley's um, Army Group is rolling along, and Patton and Hodges are running out there, and you know, doing their thing, and you know, um, the two Soviet fronts, you know, one of the Zhukov and I forget the other guy's
0: name, Rokosovsky, I think, was it?
1: Yeah, could be right. Yeah, they're they're smashing in from the east. You know, the war is coming to an end, and as the war, and as you know, the Soviets realize that. The war is coming to an end, and Eisenhower specifically tells Marshall that he is not going for Berlin. He's saying it would cost 100,000 American lives, I'm not going for Berlin, and Churchill is apoplectic about uh-huh. by the way, and also apoplectic about the fact that Montgomery is now the sideshow and not the main... Right. So there's that, that tension going on, by the way. And so there's all these tensions going on, and the Soviets um, are now at their paranoid best. They, they, there was a... Um, the Americans were talking to some Germans in Bern, Switzerland, about the Germans in uh, northern Italy capitulating on their own. Mm-hmm. Soviets think they're trying to create a separate peace, and so this this fragile alliance is coming apart at the seams as the you know the Third Reich is falling. Right, and so the and the Americans then you know had there was a letter from Roosevelt to Stalin. You know, they're saying no, it's a minor misunderstanding. It really wasn't a negotiation, You know this kind of stuff's going on, right? They're they're trying to and so what I need the victory conditions they're doing is they're saying. Look, the reality is, is that there's you, you need to at least, and from a game out, you know, from from outside looking in, there needs to look like there's an alliance going on, even though the three of you are competing to win the game, and you don't want to comp- you don't want to cooperate at all at this point. That's what's forcing the um, the historical bubble of you know keeping it within some realm of what might have happened. Now, the game does permit the fact, is that, it look? You guys are gamers. I'm a competitive gamer. You may not want to play that way. And so, if somebody runs away with it, my view is is that the alliance fractured, and two of them are looking at the, the third guy and saying, "You're out there, and we're not with you now." However, that might have broken up. Now, there are certain combinations that are harder to believe than others, but you never know. Uh, you know. So there's that. And then, of course, is the one where somebody says, "I don't. I'm going to make a. I'm going to cut a deal with the Germans and the Japanese." Remember that um, the Soviet Union was not at war with Japan, mm-hmm. and they had to offer, in fact, Marshall wrote after, um, after Yalta, he felt, he felt that's when they got the agreement from Stalin that he was going to, you know, that's when the conditional issue would have played out historically. You know, when at Yalta, when uh, Marshall felt they gave the Soviets way too much to get them to come into the war. And, and so if the Americans historically, you know, a, in an ahistorical path had said, no, what you want is too much then Stalin would have said, I'm not going in the war. So that was a very plausible path. And by the way, they didn't need Stalin in the war, by the way, at that right. point. They didn't. Th- in fact, Marshall already believed that they could do it without the Soviets. And so bribing them to come into the war is actually probably a historical blunder it's in a lot mistake. of was a mistake, yeah, for sure. It was a mistake. So that path is very legitimate. And so what I usually find, and then uh, Germany was going down. But the question was, and you could go back to even some of the things that Patton was saying, although he died, he didn't get a chance to carry that on. You know, the armies were on the field, and some Americans, not many, but some Americans, they were tired of the war, and they still had the Japanese side. But a lot of people were saying, like, the Soviets were already, you know, getting out of line. Imagine if the Soviets were way out of line, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were starting – the NKVD was out there in Eastern Europe cleaning up the situation, as right. they say. So – and this was all known, and a whole lot of things were going on, and the Americans started doing the same thing in Italy against the Soviets. They were keeping them at arm's length. So the Cold War had already begun, by the way. It's just that they hadn't killed the Germans yet. Mm-hmm. And so – this condition three, where we're not even worrying about the Axis surrender, we're just all trying to get the leverage, just means that Hitler gets assassinated or kills himself or whatever, Donuts takes over, and either the West or the East, um, you know, cuts a deal with Germany, and the war continues, or a new kind of weird, you know, tension situation, you know, create, is created with somebody is on top. That's really what's going on here, because war didn't have to end the way it did. Uh, the fact that it did end the way it did doesn't mean that that is the you know the the um the gold standard, by the way, especially in the in the Pacific,
0: okay, because that was going to be my next point. <clears throat> you sort of uh, anticipated that, which is that I'm not sure I mean, I see your 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 justification for condition three. My feeling was always that if you're if if you're not going to win the war, then you know, you sort of have all failed, right? i mean, if if uh, uh, that,
1: that, that, let me just pick that up for a minute. Yeah. It, it's not that the war didn't end. The war did end. The war does end. It's just that the sides didn't come out. The unconditional surrender thing fell apart and somebody cut a bilateral deal with somebody, which was against the rules of the Atlantic Charter and everything else, right? Right. So it's not that the war doesn't end and you all failed. It's that somebody took the advantage of grabbing, you know, remember the Axis still had an army, you know, right up to the very end. There Mm -hmm. were a lot of German, you know, a lot of German, very experienced and and they had scientists. So imagine if you cut a deal with the Germans, if you're going to go after the Soviets or the Soviets are going to go after the West and they were able to, you know, use that as more energy to take over Western Europe in the, in the near future. Mm-hmm. That would have been, that's really what's being said here. It's not that the war didn't end. The war's over, or it's going to end. And by the way, historically, the war, if the A-bomb doesn't exist, the war wasn't supposed to end until 1946. That's mm-hmm. when uh, Operation Downfall, which I capture through the victory conditions, occur is supposed to occur, which is um, uh, Olympic was the invasion of... Um, Japan. Well, the, the southern, you know... Um, uh, Kyushu, uh, Kyushu. Mm-hmm. and then um, the second part was Coronet, which is the invasion of the Tokyo. Yeah, I guess Tokyo is on a plains. I've never been there, but they were going to invade at the Tokyo area, and that was so that was that's downfall of those two pieces. And so that's that wasn't supposed to happen until 1946, okay. uh, obviously. And by the way, another thing is you know the Cold War had begun at Potsdam by then. If you didn't, you know, yeah. people don't realize Potsdam. You read any book about it, it was. Roosevelt, Roosevelt actually did have a personal relation with Stalin. Stalin had a soft spot for Roosevelt for mm-hmm. a lot of reasons, maybe because he was, you know, manipulated him and getting everything he wanted. I'm right. not sure. Right. But, um, but he's dead. Churchill has lost the election to Attlee. So you got sitting on the table now. Stalin's the only guy who's been there from the beginning. you got Truman who sort of didn't know anything about anything until, you know, Roosevelt died. They literally had to bring him into the White House and say, OK, let, let me tell you about the A-ball. Let me tell you what Right. He, he, he didn't even know the map room existed, by the way. You know, Roosevelt had a map room that he modeled on the British one. Oh, I didn't know that. And by the way, the map room is what the, the right side of the map, for those who haven't seen the game, is sort of like the war is meant to be the map room. In other words, hmm. uh, Churchill had a mobile... Uh, set of maps that went with him everywhere. Right. And, it, you know, it's pins, you know, it looks like a war game, right? It's mm-hmm. got you know, front lines and pins all over the place with colors and where the units are and what they know intelligence wise and all that stuff. Yep. And so the one on the right is Churchill's map room. And when Roosevelt saw the mobile map room, when Churchill brought it to the White House, he he had them make him one, right? Mm-hmm. So Truman had never been in the map, didn't even know what map room existed until Roosevelt was dead. Yeah, That's how clueless. So when he gets the pot stand, the only thing he knows is I got this A-bomb thing. You know? Right. Like, Right and that's that's represented in the game. Uh, Truman's very capable as long as the a-bomb exists. otherwise he's kind of he, he may screw up
0: right okay so so the so what's being represented is is uh, so the war ends regardless. It's just when and how.
1: and how the side and who's on what you know did it end the way that, it didn't end the way that they it didn't end the way they agreed to, to have it end. In other words, Germany is now on one somebody's side. Mm-hmm. In this post-war, if, they, if Germany didn't surrender, and Japan has cut a deal, most likely with the Americans, uh, you know, so that you know, there, you know, this maybe you know, the situation in the Pacific is not what happened historically with the U.S. occupation and all that. So there's another, you know, there's a, still a Japanese army. Maybe it's withdrawing from China. Maybe it's still in China. I mean, who knows what the actual terms are? But there's still this gigantic army still sitting in the East. By the way, because remember, most of the Japanese army wasn't defeated; it was it surrendered. Right. So there's like you know there's like a million guys with guns and artillery and tanks and all that stuff that's sort of
0: on the table to be used by anybody. Right. If they if they cut a deal. So what's the die roll for? Say what? What's the die roll for for the for a condition 3? I mean why why is that just a gaming mechanism?
1: Well, here's the thing. Um two two points. First one is that there's a um for people who don't like uh, die rolls you know they, and they use the word gaming which i don't understand in the context of the game but everybody uses the word gaming mm-hmm. uh, yeah it's a, it's it's, a, it's an oxymoron to me but what the hell okay. uh, but there's a tournament rule where you just take a straight five points off the top and see who wins right so there's that if you don't like the roll dice there's it's already in the game the ability to just ignore that and go do that and see who won the game mm-hmm. the die roll is there to say look if if you have gone for a world of chaos and the score is close, then you don't really – you haven't been able – you can't predict how that's all going to play out, right? There's just an unpredictable nature of the thing because you've, you've gone down – you've basically broken with – it's only in condition three, by the way. You know, the axes don't surrender. Right. So you've broken – the whole alliance is broken. The world – who the pickup sticks or what you thought was going to happen and didn't happen, what you didn't think wasn't going to happen is going to happen. So that die roll is saying – in that a most of these game condition three games are close t- typically right right you know they've run through it. and so if you want to if you want to play you know Vegas to figure out who won the game that's fine I mean that's that's what's being forced if you can do that strategy and get a big lead then it doesn't matter remember if you have a more of a if you're more than twelve points ahead the die roll doesn't matter right and so the idea is if you go to this strategy of you know of just screwing your allies which is fine you better do it really well right. You're not going to do it really well. If they catch on to it, and they, it doesn't work out. Then you your 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 calculations are up in the air, and now it's a chaotic post-war world, and everything anything can happen. And that's what the die roll is representing, where Guy in first is going to lose up to six points, the guy in last is going to pick up the, up to six points, and the guy in the middle is going to uh, lose up to three points. And so that, you know, and I've now seen online uh, a whole number of games where, like, uh, I just saw one yesterday where the Soviets went for condition three, and they went from first place to last place based on that die roll. So again, strategically, it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. And so if they and all, they, all somebody had to do to win the game, it looks like, is just allow Manchuria to happen, and they would have won the game. So it's, it's it's clear to me that people are still seeing their way through with this. But that's why I put the die roll in there is to create this sense of I've lost control of the situation if it's close. Got it.
0: Okay. Well, I mean that's fair enough. I I I'm I'm still you know I have to say I'm still. Sort of feeling my way through the game. I have a feeling that this is going to be a game that people have to play a lot, um, and it's it's a it's it's really an odd it's 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 a unique thing. I was really excited when it was coming out. Uh, you know, the, the three player thing makes it a little more a little harder to get to the table than it would be otherwise. Um, but uh, but I think this is going to be a game where people have to play it a lot and figure out sort of how to how to um, you know, how to compensate for various things happening. And, and the, the fact that there are three players means that there'll be that many more combinations. So I'm, I'm looking forward to playing this game many more times. Um, I think it's, uh, it really, it really caught my interest and attention. So, uh, thanks for making it. And, uh, also thanks for talking to me for an hour about it. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, well thanks. And, and I, I will tell you that, you know, when I design a game, um, you know, I, there are a couple of things that are important to me, but the first one is, you know, like for instance, at Essen this year, I you know I, I watched the, uh, the the Dice Tower, and they said that they reviewed like a hundred games that are come, previewed up a hundred games that are coming out at Essen. Uh-huh. But they said that there's 650 games are coming out at Essen this year, which I think is this coming week or it was last week. I got yeah. like, it's right now, and um, 650 games, and a year from now there'll be another 650 or more games coming out on the market, which means that those other 650, you know, probably 10 of them were successful and they might been, and and in many cases, they might be the expansion to a, 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 you know, one of the, you know, one of the games that has established itself as a mainstream game. So there's a lot of going on here. I did Churchill. And as I do all my games, I, I want, and I think it's held up by the way, is that I want my games 10 years from now. I would like to know that people are still playing Churchill. So the game is not you know it's not meant to reveal everything on the first play i think that the market and which is why i'm not rich doing this Mm -hmm. uh, is that the market wants this sort of one hour experience and which churchill is not Mm -hmm. um the market is looking that and i see a lot of complaints that everything is just a a generic follow-on to something else and so i didn't want to do what everybody else is doing. So Mm -hmm. I accomplished that at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I like to think that 10 years from now, people are still playing it because the game has got this depth of play based on a very simple set of, you know, once you understand the mechanics, you don't have to think about them. You know, you would agree that the, the mechanics are not complex. No, not at all. Right. And so you can very quickly get the mechanics. So you're now working on the strategy and the strategy is not based on some, you know, formula because the other two players, you know, have this dynamic that's going to change the dynamic every time you play because everybody, you know, and, and every side plays differently. So you have the ability to, you know, switch. Don't you, you played Stalin a bunch of times, then you could play Roosevelt, but they all play differently. They had different advantages and disadvantages, and so how you play as a group and how you move around, you're going to see a whole lot of things happening that you'd never seen before, which is what keeps people coming back. And for me, that's really where I was trying to go. So I, I look at this as a long game. I mean, you know, I'm not looking. I mean, Churchill is a long game. But I mean, my design career is one of the long games. So, you know, Empire of the Sun was out 10 years ago, and I think it's now more appreciated now than it was 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, I think that people are talking a lot more about it now.
1: Yeah, but that means that it held up for 10 years. And a lot of games, the uh, the 650 games in Essen, I don't think they're going to be talking about most of them a year from now. So if you're still talking about a game, and then For, for the People has been out 16 years now or something like that, mm-hmm. um, people are still pick, discovering it and playing it. I mean, the sales are still strong, and it's been through like five reprints or four reprints. I can't remember anymore. Right. So my, that's the game I'm trying to play as a designer, and I hope that – and I really do believe that Churchill falls into that. So it, at least it, if you if you put the time into it and you en- – oh, of course, you have to enjoy it. And if you enjoy it and you play it, you're going to find out that – it, it, it's not going to be – it is a very replayable experience because of those – what people think are, you know, unusual victory conditions and all the other things that are going on in the game. And by the way, one other thing I would add is uh, one of the criticisms of the game has been, you know, the dice rolls in the military side, right? You know, that's it's based on a die roll, and you blow the die roll, and, and the whole game goes differently. Well, the answer is – to that aspect is – that in my games, I I I feel that yeah, I always tell people the dice love no one, right? right. You know, uh, and so in the game, if you want, you can you you have to pick priorities in this game, just like the way they did. And so if you say, look, the Western Front has got to advance, or you know, the Central Pacific has got to advance, then you need to put enough resources to make it automatic. You you have to take the dice out of the game when it matters. Okay. And if you can't figure out your priorities, and if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. Right. So one of the things in the game, and, and if you don't, and people didn't know this, if you have the ability to roll the dice twice, right, or you have the ability to roll one is automatic, and you only have to roll the dice once, really, for the you know the success failure. Right. That is always probabilistically better. I mean, it's, it's better to have one automatic, and maybe you'll get a breakthrough, or although in the Pacific you can't, but it, it's it's better to have one automatic. And then let the other ones be dice rolls because probabilistically you're always going to do better. And I don't know that a lot of people even understand that. So in the game, if you need something to happen, you can make it happen, but then at the expense that something else is going to have a lower probability. So it's better to have an automatic and a uh, a six than two eights, right? right. That's,
0: that's yeah, always- agree, yes.
1: So that's the thing that a lot of people who are – not familiar with the game it is, is the issues you pick and how you deploy your resources is critical to whether those die roll, how those die rolls affect the game. And if you let the die rolls affect the game, they will, but it, you can take them out of the game. Because again, in all my games, I always like to say, like and even in Empire of the Sun, mm-hmm. you can be sure that the invasion will succeed. You just don't know what the casualties will be. right But you will succeed. And so that's an important piece of uh, like the way I like to design is if you put enough energy into it that you can take the dice out of the situation.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'll have to uh, I'll have to put those principles to uh, to the test. Uh, I definitely expect to play this uh, a bunch more times. So, anyway, uh, thanks. Uh,
1: yeah, as a question back yeah, to you, did yeah. you hear anything that you is different than what you thought when you started this conversation?
0: Um, I I thought that I think when I started the conversation, I thought that um, I, I I got a better understanding of what condition three was. Uh, I think that um, uh, and I also didn't uh, didn't realize how much i really felt that i i guess i still have to i'm, I'm guilty of saying exactly what, uh, what i was criticizing other people for is that i played you know the uh, tournament scenario a handful of times and now i'm some some sort of expert on the hand on the tournament scenario um i'm, I'm i'll be curious to see how people can do the china burma india uh, strategy in in the in the tournament scenario and and keep the um see if he can keep the second front out i guess there are all sorts of of, uh, very, of very ahistorical strategies that I haven't tested, so I'll test those. But yeah, they, they gave me it gave me a lot more to think about.
1: Right. So, yeah, I'm, then I'm, I'm I'm glad.
0: So anyway, it's been fun talking to you. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate your time, and uh, we will uh, hopefully when you put out your next uh, incredibly uh, deep, uh, hard to think about game, we'll talk to you again about that.
1: Uh, that'll be Pericles, hopefully.
0: Okay, uh, we will talk to you about it. Thanks a lot, Mark. Appreciate it. it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.